Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A new podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome to a new season of TV Show and Tell, the podcast about how and why TV gets made. I'm David Bodikim. I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, and I'm an international TV consultant based in the UK. And here's a question of our modern age. How do you construct a career in new media? In this episode, we speak to someone who's done exactly that. Nick Uhas is a science educator on YouTube who's appeared on Big Brother in Canada and is perhaps best known as the host of Blown Away, a glass-blowing competition for Netflix. He'll also be joined by Donna Luke, the supervising producer of Blown Away and a senior vice president at the Canadian production company Marble Media. Also, a quick welcome to all of our new listeners. We've had literally thousands of you enjoying the show recently, which is great to see or hear. We're here to demystify the world of television and streaming media. So if you have any questions about the industry that you'd like us to answer, give us a tweet on the handle at TV Show Podcast. But first, it's time for the catch-up, where we look at any TV news stories that have caught our eye. So, Justin, what's new in the world of formats? Well, I particularly noticed uh, a spin-off of Millionaire called Fastest Finger First, which is coming up. Basically, it's taking the first round of Millionaire, where contestants have to put answers to a multiple-choice question in in a particular order. Essentially, the production company, Stellify Media, have taken this round and expanded it into a whole show, the winner of which will be fast-tracked to the hot seat of Millionaire. So that's quite a clever idea, is it being a feeder show to the main mm. um, programme. When I saw this, I, I just wondered if it might be a bit button-mashy. It's, like, it's always tricky when you're getting people to vote on um, multiple-choice things and, and people are typing stuff in. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out. So Masked Singer, as we know, has uh, ignited a a huge amount of interest in formats from Korea and a paper format that's just been picked up by Fremantle before the broadcaster SBS have aired the original is DNA Singer. The premise of DNA Singer is that you have family members who share the DNA of celebrities right? and they sing and then the judges have to guess which celebrities they are genetically related to. That begs the question, how on earth have we found out Frank Sinatra's DNA? (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Maybe I shouldn't ask this question, because there may be some very dark reasoning behind that, I don't know. Or perhaps from one of his toupees. In the UK, Simon Cowell's production company, Psycho, is said it's winding down, apparently because Simon wants to spend more time with his family. It's the production company that's been behind many great hits and uh, more recently has done things like Rolling in It. But its last uh, series, which Simon was supposed to be a judge on, Walk the Line, was uh, seen as something of a critical flop. And um, perhaps that's been the the nail in the coffin. And apparently that whole production company is going to be reducing its staff soon. So the other thing that I've noticed from abroad um, is a a new format from Denmark called Shaolin Warrior Monk. This is from Denmark? 
Yes, I know. It's kind of strange, isn't it? So basically, grandmasters are going to train celebrities in the ancient martial art of Kung Fu in order to improve their physical attributes, obviously, confront their fears and develop them as people. And this is apparently going to have epic cinematic production values. It's not the first time I've seen this, actually. Um, I worked on a show in South Africa, uh, which took a group of men, all of whom are having difficulties in their lives from one to another, and taught them Taekwondo in a very strict camp, which again had that combination of learning how to do something very physical, but something that was also extremely disciplined and to bring focus and purpose to their lives mm-hmm. and it, it was a, it worked really well it was a it's, it's actually quite an interesting combination although the actual sport of, of kung fu is not that old well i think kung fu is chinese and karate is japanese because i find it quite funny that the in the quotes the broadcaster said i've always loved karate I'm thinking interesting so why would you commission a series about kung fu then? <laughs> And now it's time for our interview with YouTuber, TikTok star and presenter of the Netflix show Blown Away, Nick Uhas, about how he's constructed his career in new media. So our first special guest today joining us from Los Angeles is Nick Uhas. Hi, Nick. What is up, team? <laughs> Great to have you. Now, you're a YouTube and TikTok star, a science influencer, and the presenter of Netflix's hit television show, Blown Away, and, once upon a time, a professional stunt rollerblader. So, let's start there. Stunt rollerblader, aggressive inline skating, what's all that about? How did you get into that? Yeah, I feel like this is kind of like where the, the journey starts in entertainment. I think at the time, I didn't really realize that those two were related. So in my hometown of Hilliard, Ohio, which is a suburb of Columbus, this was the coolest thing happening in the early 90s. But it wasn't about rollerblading specifically, like the cool kids with like the really baggy jeans and the wallet chains. They were doing aggressive in line, which was essentially skateboarding, but with rollerblades. And for whatever reason, I just felt totally in love with this. I just thought this was the coolest thing ever. But I started probably when I was around 10, and so I went to college my first year, but in my first semester, I actually remember calling up my mom and saying, I'm going to go to college in San Diego. I was going to use that journey to basically become a professional rollerblader. I picked up a sponsor. I got into the ASA, the Aggressive Skating Association's North American World Championship, and I took seventh in top 10 turn pro. I was just living in this dream, traveling international, making videos winning competitions, in the magazines. And what I didn't realize at the time, though, is that really was entertainment. It didn't. It felt like a sport to me because I kind of came from this sort of athletic background or whatever, but it really was the beginning to an entertainment career because I just never really thought of it that way. And so that's when I really started leaning in towards entertainment. It was, you know, could there be a pathway here where I could extrapolate all the joy and excitement and sort of the same types of, things that you learn how to do as a professional athlete, um, but then apply them to a new industry. So when did the when did you first set up a YouTube channel? And was that about uh, rollerblading? Or was that about science? Or wh- where, where did you begin? So that's a little fun fact. <laughs> the very first YouTube channel, 
was actually about rollerblading. And so I stayed on the East Coast and moved to New York City pr pursuing production. And while I was in New York City, we kept the, the YouTube channel going. But the finances of it in the beginning, like paying someone to film and edit, it just like didn't make any sense. So there was this long period of time where the YouTube channel kind of like stopped or, you know, died out basically. And when I then, after three years of New York, when I, when I moved to Los Angeles, I really saw the future of digital. I was like, I had seen all my friends just make budding careers and just launching off like rocket ships. And I thought, look, it's not too late. I can still do this. But now if I'm going to relaunch a YouTube channel, I'm going to have to figure out what to put on it. And so in the beginning, actually, I had three pilots on the YouTube channel. And I think the views were like 100 views, 100 views, and like 1,000 views for the for those three videos. And I was like, all right, well, this is it. You know, like the proof now is in the views. We're going to focus solely on science videos. And this was 2013. Because that's one thing about new media that maybe traditional TV execs don't realize is that the amount of feedback you get from the, the statistics so that you can fine-tune where people are watching, what time people are watching, which videos work, which ones don't. What's really cool about YouTube is you get immediate feedback. And this goes for any digital platform. You know in real time, hey, this video worked. Here's my average view duration. Here's the percent people just decided to leave. And so you can really begin to curate your content to please that audience so much more so than you can, let's say, in linear, which is like, hey, look, you get a report back that says Nielsen rating says this, which is like very gray. You don't really know what that means. And so it's, it's much more difficult to grow something when you don't have the data. What was the first video when the, the views are so big you thought, wow, uh, this is working. I can make a career out of this. There wasn't necessarily one video where I thought, oh my gosh, this is it. It really was like the opportunities that kept coming in. And that, that first opportunity was being offered a full-time job for the Weather Channel and creating what's called an interstitial. So it's basically like a three-minute piece that goes through. Because the Weather Channel does like streaming content. It's like Sports Center, like you know ESPN. They have to continuously update you all day long. It's like news. And so they decided to do programming in the center of that. So it was a show called Weather Science. That was like the code name. Um, and it ended, up being called, it ended up being called Brainstorm. But it was basically like Mythbusters, but for weather. And so for, for like a year and a half, almost two years, um, had a full-time job, like nine to five. We'll go out there, shoot, write, produce, everything. And it really was that job that made me realize that creating stuff on the internet, even if there was no immediate return, there would be returns in opportunities. Which is the experiment you're most proud of? It's really interesting. Some of the most viewed are, are not always like the most proud of, for example. And so the one that I would say probably that we're most known for is the world record elephant toothpaste experiment. It has 32 million views on YouTube. It had 266 million views on TikTok. It was the most viewed video of 2019. So elephant toothpaste is kind of this very classic science experiment. Um, what you do is you mix uh, a catalyst. In many cases, it's either potassium iodide or sodium iodide. And you mix that with a concoction of hydrogen peroxide and food coloring dye and soap. And what, what ends up happening at a, at a molecular level is that when you mix these two together, the catalyst basically um, splits apart the hydrogen peroxide and it creates uh, oxygen gas and water. 
So if you have soap in that mixture together, what happens is, is that those oxygen bubbles get caught in the soapy hydrogen peroxide, which is then turned into oxygen and water mixture, and it creates foam. And it does it really quickly. And it's almost like a magic trick because it looks like you just have this little you know, amount of liquid that then turns into this massive blob of foam. But sort of you know, the way that it looks and the way that it expands, it, it literally looks like magic. So a lot of people do this on a small scale. I mean, one liter at a time. And one liter probably gives you about a cubic meter of foam. And so at the time, there was another creator, Mark Rober, who did this in a pool. And he filled a pool. And we just so happened to have a hyperbaric chamber. We had this in the garage for <laughs> a long time, as one does. And I thought, hey, like we could basically do what we've done in the past, but we could do it in this hyperbaric chamber. So that was our first attempt, and that was red foam. And we partnered with this other YouTuber named David Dobrik. And so that happened, and then that kind of sparked uh, kind of this mini little like elephant toothpaste battle back and forth between several other creators. And so it kind of kept going back and forth. And then we went out and got this rain captcha bucket, which is like, essentially just a giant water jug. It's probably about seven feet tall, five feet across. We had a lifeguard tower and then like a 55 gallon drum on top of that. And we pulled the catalyst down into this giant container. And the mound of elephant toothpaste that we created was not exaggerating here, larger than the guy's house that we were doing it at. Like <laughs> it had peaked over his house. And I thought, oh my God, like, you know, I was going to ask, like, because like, when I was watched it, I thought, I wonder if you perhaps underestimated how large that was going to be, <laughs> because like, it pretty much filled the entire backyard. We certainly did. We did not. So what we didn't realize is, is like, and no one's ever really done like a hyper analytic sort of measuring of it. But I would say there are elements of this very standard reaction that are kind of a runaway, which means like the result is exponential as far as, you know, it's not a linear track. I put in A and B, I get C and D. It, it really did kind of get larger than anticipated. And then also because it was so hot, the bubbles were so hot, it actually became airborne and literally started floating away into the LA Valley. So it, uh, it was surprising all the way around. <laughs> So you currently have uh, 700,000 subscribers on YouTube and 7.4 million on TikTok. How does your uh, approach differ on those two platforms, um, both in the people you reach and the kind of content that you create? YouTube and TikTok can be two totally different fits, meaning you can have an enormous TikTok channel and be a very poor YouTube creator. And you can be a very good YouTube creator and be a very poor TikTok creator because of the way that you think of ideas. The average view duration, roughly speaking, in general, everyone kept shooting for about 24 seconds on TikTok. That was sort of the standard. So you start thinking about concepts that happen in 22 to 24 seconds. That's a very different concept versus YouTube, which since the beginning, it used to be about cat videos. It was not about average view duration, AVD. Over time, the algorithm changed and it said, hey, no, we're really about watch time, average view duration as well, how long people spend with your content. And those benchmarks sort of moved up to about seven minutes. Well, to get seven minutes, you really need like a 15 minute video, roughly speaking, or more. 
And so you got to start thinking, well, how could I make a 14 minute video? Well, 14 minutes is dramatically different than 24 seconds. <laughs> and so you can almost see that there's going to be a chasm of creative differences here because you can do it this way, which we've been doing it for a while. We were platform agnostic. We'd come up with a concept and then we would make content for the individual buckets. That worked for a while and it definitely certainly worked, but then your bottleneck became time. I mean, if you're taking three to, you know, three to four weeks to try to make a YouTube video that's really great, but you haven't posted on TikTok for three to four weeks, then that's a problem. You're not hitting the benchmarks there. Mm. And so they're really different and they're growing so different now that I think this is a prediction for the future is that people or creators that are doing both might have to adapt to either expanding their team and scaling their team so that they have different members of the team that are at their certain posts. Because as it stands right now, I think they're going to continue to grow apart. The way people consume the content is very different. You flip through TikTok. You don't, you never know what's coming next. And in YouTube, you go to, like, I liken it to a um, thrift store. There's a lot of crap in there. Some of it's good. You got to go find it. So there are just tremendous differences. And so I, I think um, it's very different for the creator to try to do both. Okay, so let's just take a, a little detour into the world of contestants, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> as, as your career has taken these detours as well, so we might as well. So first of all, I think back in 2013, you appeared on Big Brother. Tell us about that. Why did you take part, and uh, what did you get out of it, and how did it go? So thus far, you could probably see that a lot of a lot of what I do are like it's all strategy, right? So there's some type of strategy. There's been a lot of a lot of thinking through a lot of things, and it's you know it doesn't seem to be super willy nilly. At the time in New York, when people did reality TV, there was this big uh, sort of underlining, almost like undercurrent of if you do reality TV, you will be blacklisted from everything, and no one will ever hire you. Because reality TV was taking off and social media was also taking off. And there was no give and take. There was no seesaw effect here where if you built a big social media following from uh, reality TV, that you could use that. That was sort of novel at the time because no one even thought about it. They were like, oh, well, I guess, yeah. I mean, who cares if you have a lot of Twitter followers? But I started thinking and looking at that and saying, I have a hunch that what will happen is, is over time is that social media will become more important than the gatekeepers of, you know, the entertainment industry. And that, for the most part, I wouldn't say it's completely true. I mean, there's still people that, you know, are going to hire you for certain things. But for the most part, social media has taken a very large, I would say, you know, focus for, uh, you know, opportunities within the entertainment industry. So I was looking for ways to basically fulfill this plan. And I looked at all the different reality TV shows, and I'd actually... I actually had an audition for some that were not so great. Um, I was on this. I actually got cast for one called The Bachelor Pad. It was a mix between Big Brother and The Bachelor. And like the TV crew, like the crew was like on their way to like come to my apartment. And I called my agent and I was like, hey, like I did this thing. I don't want to tell you. And he's like, oh, my gosh, don't do that. Like, do not do it. Like, it's bad. <laughs> you know, whatever you do, like pull the plug and. I, I had to like disappoint these people and I was sweating and it was terrible. So then the next year, the next cycle, this is like 2013, I was thinking, well, what show do I really like and what show do I really enjoy doing? But that would also fulfill this sort of, you know, need. And my agent at the time was like, dude, just do like Survivor or like Big Brother or something like that. And I was like, 
that's a really good idea. Like I, you know, this would be so fascinating, so fun to play. And it was the, in my entertainment career, it was probably one of the only silver bullets that I've ever had, which was like, I auditioned for it, it happened, and then I was on the show. Like, no take two, just was on it. Now, that also came with the fact that I was only on it for two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) The problem was, is I didn't really realize that the show is a show. I was taking it kind of like the rollerblading days. I was taking it like a sport. You know, I'm going to win this sport. This is the Olympics. I'm going to win. And I wasn't really listening to uh, the clues of production. Hey, maybe you don't want to do this. Hey, maybe you don't want to do that. And I was being way too bullish about it. And I, I ultimately just, you know, I, I got off the show real fast. Um, and so that's what happened there. But that actually is what led on to America's Got Talent. Eventually, I was doing so many science experiments for the Today Show. I'd done nine actually for the Today Show, different production company, but still the same network, NBC said, hey, we saw your work on the Today Show. We want you to do this for America's Got Talent. And I said, well, look, I already did reality TV. Like, I already did it. I know what that's like. I'm not sure if I want to repeat that. I'm okay not doing it. And they said, no, 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 it's going to be great for your career. It's going to be great. Like, you should do it. Um, it turned out actually being very great because it, it offered uh, something that I had not done at the time, which was it created a live show. So I, I basically curated a science live show that um, after the show, I never really thought about doing, but then people were like, hey, will you do what you did on, on AGT for us? And I thought, yeah, that sounds great. I'll totally fly out and drive out or do whatever, and I will recreate this show. And so the um, the live science show was sort of a result of that. But that, that experience, again, so it was like I checked another box for being on reality TV again in the competition format. And that's a big key, the competition format. Because every reality TV show is different and competition shows are driven by the challenge. They're not driven by the drama. The focus of it is who's making it to the end. What are the interactions between the contestants? And experiencing that gave me very much of an insight into how that mechanism works. Now, I was not working production, but I saw certainly saw how production was working. And so that was also a really cool nugget of information that, again, I just kind of put in a vault in my brain. But just to be clear, for the AGT performance, um, the, the first one, um, what did you do? So there's kind of like a standard set within the science communication space that I would say are not easy, but they're they're very like, tried and true because they, they're demonstrable in a way that you can explain a science principle, but very simply, and they kind of have a wow factor. Because within the science world, actually not everything is demonstrable. I mean, it's like... <laughs> Hey, I'm going to show you how a nuclear reaction works. It's like, oh, hey, how about we like don't do that in the living room? <laughs> and so there's a lot of things that are just like, hey, we can't really explain this science principle. It it just can't be done. And so the first one I did, um, there's this gas called, the nickname is called deep voice gas. Um, and the, the actual name is of the gas is sulfur hexafluoride or SF6. And it's such a dense gas that when you basically inhale it just like um, helium, Helium is such a uh, light gas that your voice goes higher. Well, with sulfur hexafluoride, which is also inert, so it's totally okay to like you know breathe it in because it's just like nitrogen, which we're breathing in right now along with oxygen. It's um, it doesn't react with you. The sulfur hexafluoride doesn't, and it actually makes your voice go lower. So I had done that on the Today Show, and I did this set with you know Simon Cowell and Howie, and I, I 
it was just like it was a hit because it's always a hit everyone loves it it instantly changes your voice you know several octaves lower it feels weird it's super weird um so we did that we did what what i call the liquid nitrogen super cloud um, which is taking boiling hot water and combining it with uh, liquid nitrogen. It creates this like really cool instant um, condensation cloud that sort of billows upwards. And if there's no wind, which was perfect for the stage that we were on, it goes almost perfectly up in a column and perfectly down. Mm-hmm. And then the third one was the elephant toothpaste, which was the one that <laughs> oh, yeah, obviously became very familiar with over time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, those are the three that we did. On the second round, when I got voted out, um, again, it was actually, it was like, it was like PTSD of, of Big Brother. Like I saw it coming from a mile away and I just, I could sense it. I was like, this is happening. I'm definitely getting booted this week. The guest at the time was Seal. And I was so mad because usually in science demo land, it's like when you're working with somebody, they'll redo the science experiment until it works. And so we had a mishap in the sense that Seal is British and he had never played baseball. So I said, hit this deep frozen carved out uh, watermelon that I had deep frozen in in dry ice and ice propyl alcohol, which is called poor man's liquid nitrogen. And you're going to hit it and it's going to shatter and it's going to be amazing. Well, instead of hitting it like a, how you like do like a slugger with a (laughs) baseball bat, he hit it like a cricket bat and he (laughs) like nudged it and it just toppled off the chair and onto the ground and I thought, well, yeah, like, of course, that's not like there's no fun in that at all. <laughs> and so there was a lot of weird things that happened and it just never really it just yeah, it bombed super hard. OK, thank you. And we'll have more from Nick later. But now it's our hot topic. And today we're looking at returning contestants. We had a query from a listener about whether contestants appearing multiple times on a quiz was good or bad for ratings. Now, this is highly topical at the moment, as Amy Schneider has just completed a 40-win run on Jeopardy in the States. And in in short, spoiler alert, Justin, (laughs) the show's never been more popular. It's actually the most popular show in the states as long as you take out sports events right wow have you got any opinions about like returning contestant formats i think it depends i mean i always look at these things in terms of a of a contract with the viewer really increasingly what you want on a game show is story and character um and that's been quite a a big change in our viewing habits after the advent and success of reality shows So I think when you have a situation where somebody who is essentially Amy from Chicago becomes a character with a story and people get invested in it, you know, that it makes sense that people engage with it. And what this does is it turns them into a show with an arc, with a dramatic arc. And that also helps to retain viewers from one episode to another. Because in the UK, we've sort of managed to find a way of having repeating contestants by having professional contestants on, so like in terms of eggheads and the chase. Yeah, but again, the reason that they're there is is for the same reasons that I was saying, which is they add to a quiz show character and story, and therefore they serve a different purpose um, in terms of um, attracting and retaining audiences. 
Of course, this also dates back to the original quiz scandals um, when, for example, the show 21 was famously rigged by its uh, producer, done so in such a way that contestants would stay on for show after show and uh, the ratings built as a result. But of course, as the as famously documented in the film called Quiz Show, it was um, not on the level. No. Well, again, taking that as an example, when you have a quiz show whose prize pot isn't that great, um, by rolling over the, the prize from episode to episode, you're able to build the prize up into something that attracts attention and uh, creates real stake and jeopardy as well. Well, that's a trick that's used a lot in European quiz shows. Um, now, I'm going to get this wrong, so I'm going to have to read it really carefully. There's a famous um, quiz show called Pasa Palabra, uh, which is a Spanish format that's actually based on a, a UK idea originally. But this famously has contestants coming on day after day after day. And there's a, some sort of weird system whereby if you if you don't um, manage to win the jackpot round, you can come back and try again the, the next day. And in 2021, Pablo Diaz finally won a jackpot of nearly... 2 million euros having been on the show 260 times in a row and uh, there's also a French format called Tout le monde veut prendre sa place or everybody wants my seat basically and a contestant called Marie-Christine she won a a mere 200,000 euros (laughs) uh, having been on 213 times Wow, there was an interesting uh, situation last year on American Idol where as a twist, uh, they did an episode called A Comeback Round, and they invited 10 of the contestants from 2020 to compete in a single episode to try and win a place in the final. Mm. And the argument for that was that in 2020, um, the series had been produced during lockdown and everyone had performed remotely, and it was an opportunity for those contestants to have the full American Idol experience. So uh, by and large, I think you can say repeating contestants is something that that, um, people seem to enjoy as a whole. Um, However, it doesn't always work that way. Ian Liger was a contestant on a a fast-moving Channel 5 quiz in the UK called 100%, and he he was extraordinarily good at it. He he won 75 times in a row. Mm. But at the end of the 75th show, the announcer just went, and congratulations, Ian, you've won... Uh, another hundred pounds and you'll be leaving the show now wow. and that was the first that's the first he learned about the fact that he'd been effectively kicked <laughs> off by the producers and apparently they said it was it was hurting the ratings mm. and so um they just wanted a shot of him well perhaps we should leave the last word to richard osman on pointless a couple of years ago he took a bit of a swipe at a pair of returning contestants who'd got knocked out in round one previously and then Richard said this, listen, if you get knocked out in round one again, people will judge you, but only your loved ones and work colleagues and people you pass in the street and the nation. No one else. <laughs> now we're going back for the rest of our interview with Nick Uhas, who's joined by the supervising producer of Blown Away, Donna Luke. Mm-hmm. 
So now I'd like to bring in our second special guest, uh, Donna Luke, who's the Senior Vice President and of Business Operations at Marble Media, based in Toronto. Um, hello, Donna. Hi, Justin. How are you? <laughs> Good, thanks. So Marble Media is an award-winning and very creative production house with many great formats to its name, including Splatterlot, which I had the pleasure of helping to develop, Best in Miniature, Race Against the Tide, and the Netflix hit show Blown Away. And that's the connection to Nick, who presented the first two seasons. Uh, so Donna, give us a, an overview of the show. The show actually represents 10 glass artists that are invited to um, actually factually the largest hot shop in North America. Um, we're over a period of um, 10 episodes. They're each given a challenge uh, of which they produce a piece of glass art. And at the end of each episode, they are either given the title best in blow for that week or they are eliminated from the competition that week and then we have final two standing and the final two are given the opportunity to create an installation for a half of the gallery and then the final one is crowned and are these these are professionals these are all professional glass blowers yes and where did the idea come from uh, it was a development brainstorm in Marble Media, and at the time um, we had invited, or we were working with a couple of interns, and one particular intern said, wouldn't it be great to do a series on glass blowing?" And everybody said, oh yes, wouldn't it just? And uh, so we developed it a little, not very much, but we developed it a little, and uh, pitched to Netflix a couple of years actually before it was picked up, and we learned that... Um, Glass blowing had been pitched a couple of times, but nobody, nobody had actually figured out properly how it was going to be able to be produced. And the location is very much a big part of the format, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, we built a very large hot shop. There is nowhere that actually has 10 glory holes or reheating chambers. Um, we also have two very large furnaces and annealers. Um, so it is a very large set and we're able to leave it standing. And presumably it's very hot. Yes, the first day, I think <laughs> Nick will remember. Um, unfortunately, Canada's weather is very odd and we started um, shooting episode one in October, which we thought would be fine. Um, but we had a couple of days that had a humidex value of around 28 degrees. So um, I think the temperature in the hot shop that day actually got to above 60 it was pretty awful. Wow. We, we called one day off and then um, we went back in to produce on the second day. Probably one of the worst days of my career. But um, And since then, we have, we've tried, poor Nick, because he gets freezing cold. We now try to shoot the show when the weather is much colder. Um, but it's unfortunate because we literally go from a very hot, hot shop to a very cold hot shop. And even on some days when all of the furnaces are on, we'll be lucky if it gets to 60 degrees Fahrenheit, actually. One of the details just, just I, Donna, the, the ceiling melted on, the, on that day. So well, like... actually, the light bulbs melted, um, the camera switched off. It was, it was pretty intense. It was actually pretty awful. But yeah. nobody had ever had a hot shot with 10 glory holes going at once, so we didn't really know. I mean, it was kind of baptism by fire, <laughs> intended. <laughs> yeah, it was like this, it was a point over where you're like, you're in the sauna, 
and it just goes on too long. And you think if I stay in here, maybe just a little too long, like there's probably some serious health thing going on here. And everyone was very aware of that. I mean, it was completely professional across the board. Everyone was like, okay, look, we got to like, you know, draw the line. And the line was drawn, but then it was like, okay, well, now that we've drawn the line, like, now we got to fix it. And so to my understanding, like we blew through all of the sort of like the whoops days early. You know, you always pad the production schedule. Right. And so right. it was like, oh, shoot, we got to like literally like do construction while everyone's just, you know, everyone's here. That's like the worst time to like do construction when everyone's present, you know? And so it was, it was I, I can't believe you guys did it, to be honest. Like that was like, like pulling, that was a miracle. Like, yeah, we did. Really we had, came we, through. We cut holes in the roof immediately so that all the heat was able to go up and out. And we also installed huge air conditioning units. And that was all done literally at the end of that first day. I'm interested in the length of the show because reality shows have got quite flabby as they've gone on. They seem to just get longer and longer on TV. Blown Away is a tight 23 minutes. And I know from working in Canada, that's a that's a pretty standard length for a half hour show is that something that you you brought to the show that kind of very tight storytelling when we approached the series first of all in in the development phase we wanted i think we called it a love letter to glass that that was how we approached it we also wanted the series to really be um very in keeping with the bake-off we didn't want to do that traditional reality we we really wanted to let the glass artists be the characters and be the people that um, would tell their stories. So that's why I we were also forced into that 23 minutes. But we did, I think we found a really good balance of actually figuring out what that arc is in those 23 minutes. This was our first production for Netflix. So we also had to learn how to produce a series knowing that somebody would blow through the whole series literally in a couple of hours and it's very different producing like Nick says producing content for TikTok and producing content for YouTube is is very different and producing content for a linear broadcaster and for a streamer is also very different because where you can traditionally end an episode know that there's a cliffhanger for the next one um, you can't. You really have to be mindful of that because if you rinse and repeat on a reality show, I think Netflix viewers just turn off. One thing I like, in the same way that with cakes things can go disastrously wrong, you know, if if you literally have this piece of glass melt onto the floor or or shatter into a thousand pieces, there's nothing you can do. So the, the jeopardy is very high. Yeah, it really is, and. Uh, you know, I think a lot, a lot of the questions are, well, what about the stakes? It's like there are going to be, there is going to be a lot of glass smashing. Um, what we didn't want to happen, which we had a couple of times, was, um, you know, in the annealers, which is when the glass cools down in a very controlled way. Um, we were hoping that we didn't lose anything there because people didn't really see the annealer. And then what we had to be careful of was all the finishing off happens in the cold shop, but that's not part of the series. So. We were really worried about not filming that because what happens if somebody's piece of glass shatters in the cold shop? Thankfully, nobody's had. But at the same time, what's really good about it is what goes into the annealer, what the viewer sees is as a finished piece on the hot shot floor is not what comes out of the annealer. You know, and there have been some pretty hysterical pieces of glass <laughs> that have come out of the annealer. I'm not going to say which ones they were. But um, I think that's, that's, that's the reveal. That's what we liked about the gallery is because 
the viewer doesn't see actually what that piece of glass looks like until they see it in the gallery. How did the show and Nick come together? Probably got two different stories on this one. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly I think because we did know the show but we didn't really know the show I mean it had never been done before so and I think what's really tricky is we've learned with linear broadcasters that linear broadcasters assume they know what the audience at large wants to watch not necessarily always the case, where the streamers seem to be a lot more liberal in their approach. They're happy to hear what you have to say, to hear your points of view and to really explore how you want that content to um, roll out and evolve. Um, and I think for us, we were really keen to have somebody, the host had to be the translator between the glass world and the viewer. Our resident evaluator, we knew she would be the technical person and she would be able to speak to the glass world. But really, the host had to be somebody that the audience could completely relate to, that had an idea of this world, not necessarily the art on it, but certainly the science of it. So um, Ron Carroll, who is series producer on season one, who is um, one of his absolute strengths, I would say, is finding talent. And uh, so he was adamant that, you know, we kept coming back to Nick all the time. It kept coming back to, it's got to be the science guy. It's got to be the science guy, you know. And, and we would be looking at your videos all the time and be like, oh, my God, look at this one. Look at this one. So for us, that that's what it was. Um, and then we just had to bring along a few other people. Did you get to use your science on the show? In the beginning, there was there was a lot of that. Um, well, and we kind of talked about earlier about like the 23 minutes. So, you know, like in any show, you overshoot. So you have a lot of options. Um, I think we probably filmed a lot more of the science sort of explanation, but the first season actually was even shorter than the second. So that really, I mean, that was a linear 22 minutes, half an hour show. So things that perhaps were really cool science information, but that did not advance the story or weren't critical of the story, then just didn't make their way into it. And so, but some things certainly did. And I think from a, from a perspective of just, a new show, it's like all, too many novel things, right? Never heard of glassblowing, and this is for the viewer, had never heard of a glassblowing, don't know what kind of glass it is, how, what's an annealer, what's a reheating chamber, like all these things, there are elements of science, and I wouldn't even necessarily call it so much science as I would just call it like information. And I think having the understanding of how to produce content in an information way, like explaining things to someone who had never heard of it or explaining really complex science concepts to someone who'd never heard of it. I think that element of it made its way into the show. And um, uh, maybe unlike some other shows of a similar genre, you're not afraid to disagree with the experts. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. So I think the, uh, the green light that I was so happy to get, which was just say what you're really thinking, and so I did not come in as a art expert and I did not come in as a glass expert. So what looked cool to me would be very different than what would, you know, be permissible with Catherine Gray. Cause she said, Oh, this is sloppy and they shouldn't do that, but maybe it was yellow. And I thought, yeah, but look at it. It's yellow and it's big. It's so cool. And so there was a very different perspective. And I think perhaps that helped, at least for the first show, that helped a lot because 
people sort of wanted the voice, you know, like when you watch a show, it's a one-way interaction. You know, you're not typing, there's no chat room, nothing. There's no comment section. So it's like, you have to have someone seated in there that hopefully is thinking like how you're thinking. And so I think that was sort of the the really great, beautiful aspect of it is that I could just, I could call it out. Hey, that's really nice. That, that took a lot of effort, but that looks ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was cool, that part of it. And uh, when, we, when we do go to the gallery, Catherine and Nick haven't seen anything. The first time those gallery doors open are the first time that both Nick and Catherine and the guests have actually seen that finished piece of glass, which I think also helps. You know, we don't produce that. This says a say three good things and three bad things, but generally that's something that is encouraged. It's like, tell us what you think. You seem to go an extra mile in terms of the way it's shot, montages and slow-mo shots and things like that. We wanted this to look beautiful. I mean, glass, um, I did a lot of Googling and I watched a lot of glass blowing videos on YouTube, and some of the ones that are shot by the Martin Blanks and um, the really phenomenal glass blowers, they are just stunning. And you know, I wanted it to look—I wanted the series to look like that. I wanted to be able to turn it on. And, and season one didn't do that. Season two absolutely did. But um, I wanted a chef's table. I wanted it to be rich and beautiful and dark. And you know, I wanted the—I wanted that opulence if you like and you certainly achieved it so thank you very much donna for joining us thank you nick um it's been a real pleasure to have you both on tv show and tell thank, thank you. you good fun and nick will be back for our show and tell segment at the end of the show but now it's time for Number Wang, where we get out our spanner set and look under the hood to tweak the nuts and bolts of how formats work. And we've got a really interesting topic for this one. It's about the issue of who goes first in game shows. Is it advantageous to be the first contestant in a game show? And does that break the format? Have you seen any examples of that recently, Justin? Well, I have an example of somebody going last. So this was in the first season of The Wheel or Michael McIntyre's The Wheel, as we like to call it, a contestant wasn't randomly selected to rise up to the main wheel until the very last round. Um, she then answered one question and won all the money, um, mm. which did seem not to be fair. So I think the question of who goes first or who goes last or what order they go in um, is very germane. But then you could argue a show that's based around a randomly spinning wheel with a randomly spinning wheel underneath it is going to be somewhat random. Yes, it is going to be somewhat random, but that doesn't make it a good thing. So I recently consulted on the format and we were tasked with finding out things like, you know, what's the average winnings on the game? And we found that the percentage probability of the people on podium one was slightly higher that they would get through to the final than the people on the final podium mm. obviously they they took the first question that also meant that further in the game there was more likelihood that they were still in control at some point yeah um, down the line so it wasn't a massive difference it was like just a, a maybe two or three percentage points um between pairs is that does that come off the back of this thing about um the fact that we read a screen left to right 
And so we tend in almost every game show to start with the, the team or the player or the couple on, on the on the left-hand side of the screen. I think most shows do go left to right, except on Pointless, because uh, they go right to left, don't they? And then they, mm. then they bounce back left mm. to right. And I've always wondered about Pointless, whether um, that is a show where, you know, would I prefer to, to be naming the first and last items of a list would i get a better score uh than going middle middle which is what they do if you're on the left hand side you you, right. you have the last you have the worst of the the first pass but you have the best of the second pass hmm. so what happens with something like eurovision for example well, <laughs> that is a very interesting uh, case, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to uh, a chap called Score Count on uh, one of the Discord servers that I'm a member of, um, because he has furnished me with some uh, fantastic data about the performance order that the most successful place to be is. So if, there's, if there's 26 countries performing in the final, yeah. the most successful place to be is 17th. There's been five winners who performed at slot 17. Wow. Uh, 92, 96, 06, 07, and, and 2012. That's sort of like the sweet spot, somewhere between about position 14 and 20. And I guess the logic is that like after that, most people have probably made up their mind mm-hmm. and are, and are going to be hard to convince that the, the best song has come in the last six. But... Uh, virtually nobody has won in the first seven, presumably because people have have like not turned on yet, <laughs> yeah. um, or they've forgotten. Yeah, yeah, they're kind of they're kind of missed. There's uh, there's only been three winners in the first seven slots. Definitely seen as an advantage to go in the second half. Put it that way. Mm. And um, bookmakers take this into account when they're setting the odds of, of, of winners. Do they? Right. If you get if you get an early slot, your odds of winning are severely marked down. Wow. So is that why we keep losing then? Um, I think there's other <laughs> <laughs> other potential issues uh, any, surrounding any ex- that. Any excuse we can hang it on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just it's just it's just the maths. So what about the other way around then? What what happens, um, again, about people who come in late in the day? I remember there was a, sh- a version of um, 500 questions that we had in the UK, which only had 50 questions in it, rather <laughs> bizarrely. And that had a kind of like a queue system where like the first contestant, if they failed, if they got three questions wrong at any stage, they left the show, and then the next contestant, they they came on and, and tried their best. And so that had a similar situation with the wheel. It, it, like If somebody got knocked out at question 49, mm. somebody else could come on at question 50, just survive that question, and they would be given the, a whole bundle of money. Right. Um, uh, coming last can also be a massive disadvantage. So, for example, on um, The Price is Right... Uh, if you're the last contestant to come on down, you only have one chance of, of getting a price and earning your right to have a main go at a, a prize game. Mm. And likewise, there's quite a lot of uh, formats these days that have like a Monday to Friday squad of contestants. So let's say like the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday winners have gone. They have to bring in some fresh blood for the Friday show. And so you, you might only have one game on the Friday before they refresh the entire panel of contestants. Mm. How do you think it works with the reality shows? Because I suspect that 
quite often they parachute somebody in halfway through let's say i'm a celebrity get me out of here and you think oh wow this contestant's going to be really good and then they often leave like two days later Hmm. well probably i think it's because they are simply looking to uh, prop up the ratings at a particular moment Um, i remember there was a season in denmark of survivor it had been cast well um, according to the usual criteria and it just wasn't catching fire and so they introduced sharks <laughs> as, as as contestants right no not you, as contestants you, no i mean I, I, admittedly this is not a story about contestants but the but the point is that uh, i i just remember sitting there listening to this very laconic uh danish producer sort of saying and that's when we brought on the sharks um so the point was was to basically do something shocking in order to bring people back to the show so i think that's the primary reason um but equally the reason why they don't stay or the reason why they don't win um is because again that contract with the viewer these people haven't played the game as much as the others yeah if it's if the relationships and the everything's been settled and people sort of think oh we're, we're like this group then mm. if you bring in some sort of a new factor then it seems more often than not that the viewers just want them to go away again and yeah. reset. It's a bit, bit yeah. strange. Well, it's pretty much the same as it is in school when somebody comes, you know, late in the year or, or <laughs> you know, um, it's very hard to fit in and people want them to go away. So there we are. <laughs> Justin, just didn't let it go. It was like 40 years ago But now, Nick Uhas returns to show and tell us about an object that has a deep significance to his career in the media. So we're back with Nick Uhas, and uh, Nick, we ask everybody to come and show and tell us something that has a, a story behind it or influenced their career in some way. So what have you got to show us? Okay, so this one may be a little cliche in some ways, but maybe not in others. And so I'm going to show you this, and there's a story behind this. So this, <laughs> if you can't tell, is a Lego set for a Toyota Supra GR. Now, this is like what the car actually looks like in real life, a yellow version of it. Now, the story behind it is this, is that when I was early on in my uh, entertainment career, I had a 1991 MR2 Turbo, and I worked on it, and I loved it, and this was during like my stunt skating days. At that time, 90s, there was this other car called the Supra, which was made extremely famous by uh, Fast and the Furious, but that car was just like, it was like three to four times outside of my price range, but that was like the big boy car, right? So it was like, if you could have a Supra, you were like in. That was, that was sort of pinnacle, you have made it in life. Now that I think about it, it's really, it's like not, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But that stayed with me for so long that as I went out through my entire entertainment career and where I am now, um, after doing, you know, Blown Away and all these other TikToks and, and YouTube, I thought, well, one thing that would sort of be a benchmark for me is to buy a sports car. And so I started to become very obsessed with the new 2020, 21, and 22 Supra GR. So I put it on my goal board, of which it's still up there right now. And I spent all year last year uh, through the pandemic trying to hunt one down. And I found that Supra and I bought it. And when it, it, when it arrived off the truck, 
Um, the person that I bought from the dealership had put this in the front seat as a gift for me. That's great. Nick, we look forward to seeing what other things you get up to and uh, maybe what bigger, more fancy vehicles you've got next on your list. But uh, for now, (laughs) thanks very much for joining us on TV Show and Tell. Absolutely. Thank you. And back despite popular demand, it's time for another round of our little parlour game. At the end of the show, Fake or Format. And as it's a new season of the podcast, I'm going to do two generous things. Uh, First, I'm going to generously reset the scores to 0-0. And secondly, I'm not going to mention that you lost season (laughs) 1-4-0. So this week, Justin's going to read out two format synopses. One is real and one is fake. Okay, David. So these are both uh, shows from Fox Reality in the US. Mm. The first one... Um, it's called The Next Wife. The Next Wife. And it is a dating show for polygamists. Mm. So polygamists are people who marry uh, multiple wives. Um, and in this show, each week, the current wives of a polygamist work together, or not, to choose his next wife. Right. Okay. That's number one. Number two is called Who's Your Daddy? Who's Your Daddy features an adopted child who's now grown up, and they have to guess which of 25 men is their biological father. And if they're right, the contestant wins a cash prize. And if they're wrong, their incorrect selection of father wins the money. Okay. Gosh. So, the next wife or Who's Your Daddy? They both sound wonderful. Um... They both sound vaguely familiar, which is a problem for me. Uh-huh. There's definitely been some kind of show about polygamists, but I have a feeling it was it was it a game show or was it there was some kind of show about triangles? I seem to remember. Well, it wasn't but, a game show. It's a it's a reality show. Um, yeah. So it's following following the uh, the family, if you like, over a period of episodes. And then Who's Your Daddy? That sounds very much like one of those sorts of late 90s shows, like Identity, when you were supposed to sort of work out who somebody's identity was by just looking at them. So I'm going to plump for for Who's Your Daddy? Damn, you're right. Again, (laughs) too good at this. Yes, The Next Wife. There have been a number of reality shows that uh, follow a polygamist family. Uh, but not one in which we followed the wives choosing them. Though, interestingly enough, I think that that does happen um, in some polygamous families. Right. Who's Your Daddy has been done, um, as you say, in that period of uh, major tastelessness and on Fox reality. So, yes, if they if they guessed their real daddy, then they would win $100,000. Wow. And if they guess wrong then the daddy, who was presumably uh, motivated to uh, to deceive, uh, would then win the $100,000. But they did then reveal who the real father was, which is nice of them. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there we go. It's only 1-0, so that's not bad. <laughs> it's not bad, but there's still plenty of time to come back. And I have to say, I have got absolute rips and for you next time. Have you? So. Oh, great. I shall look forward to that. 
But that's it for now. Remember, we're indexed on all the major podcast providers, so do subscribe and review us where you possibly can. We'd be very grateful. You can follow what we're up to on Twitter, at TV Show Podcast, or you can go old school and send us an email via the address contact at tvshowandtell.com. Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggie. And this has been TV Show and Tell.